0: Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Echo Podcast. Today, we'll be joined by a spe- <laughs> special guest, um, UNSW's
1: very own Mark T. I'll Hello. let him introduce himself. Hi there, I'm Mark. Um, I'm going to assume that a significant portion of your audience already kind of knows me because one will have a lot of trouble getting into CSE without going through POM <laughs> 1511. So the last two years of students, I think, all know me, but you know could be some people who are in higher levels of their degree who I haven't actually taught. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Um, firstly, we'll just start maybe with like how it all started. Was computers, programming, coding something that little Mark always wanted to do, or was that something you grew to like?
1: I like the implication that I'm big Mark now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy that. Um, oh, sorry. I'm just kicking, kicking your microphone stand. I don't know if that's going to be bad. Um, So, little Mark, I'm thinking back to where this could have begun. Um, So, my dad worked for a a company called ICL. Um, I think that's, like, in ancient history now, but I think they were connected in some way to Olivetti, or at least they were bought out by Olivetti. This was back in the day when Italians made computers. So, it was just like, they were considered the best computers in the world at the time, Olivetti. And so, my dad was working... With that stuff. And so I think that he had an inkling that technology was going to be important, um, that, that in this near future, we were going to get this kind of upswing in the use of computers and things like that. So I would have been, I think, maybe seven years old when he brought our first PC home. So that's mid 80s. Um, I'm not going to tell you exactly how old I am, but but yeah, so around, around the mid eighties and I started playing around with that and I got like, um, books on basic and stuff like that. And so I was trying to program in basic, but that never really went anywhere. Like I did some things that didn't have a full understanding of what was going on. Um, and it really wasn't until I actually came here to UNSW, um, Doing my software engineering degree was a pretty funny thing because when I put my preferences down to come to university, number one was software engineering and number two was music. So I just rolled the dice and I said, if my marks are high enough for software engineering, and back then software engineering was nearly a brand new course, I was like maybe the second or third year to do it. So the cutoff was was pretty high. And so I didn't really know who I was going to get that. Um, And then I scraped through. Uh, and ended up in software engineering. But like, I really, I, I find that kind of, I don't know if anyone else has done this where they've just had no real idea about what they wanted to do with their life and they just roll the dice and then just let life carry you <laughs> wherever it goes. They ended up here. So um, yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting thing. I don't think that I was ever destined for computing. I don't think little Mark had this as as an aim or a goal Um, and even the fact that I'm here lecturing probably means that the whole full-on engineering side of computing never really clicked with me. And I can honestly say that it never really clicked with me, um, because I've always kind of gotten along better with people than machines. Yeah. So I think that's how I ended up teaching. And I always joke that it actually didn't matter that much if I'd gotten into, um, software engineering or music, because if I'd done music, I would probably just be back here at UNSW teaching music teach now.
2: So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you think it was maybe the influence of your dad that maybe pushed you towards that?
1: I think so. I think my dad definitely made sure that the newest tech was always available. Yep. So the the newest tech was available in our house all the time. And so I had like my first glimpse of computers was actually even before the pc it was like dad's atari 2600 it's like playing <laughs> gotcha. games on that and then um the the sega mega drive around that would have been around 1990 i think around then and yeah. so all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff um meant that i was no stranger to technology it didn't necessarily push me towards wanting to make it as such but i think um i think it meant that i always had a familiarity with it and you you can kind of feel like you know learning how to code if you've got a a history with sort of systems with moving parts you know it's nearly like if someone plays with lego as they're growing up they're going to have an easier time programming because they're just the whole concept of things fitting together in particular ways and like systems with rules in a sense will allow you to kind of go okay if there's a system with rules i can still apply my creativity to use those rules in ways to solve problems and and I think that like that probably helped me to eventually get programming when it when it came but it came down to it in the end
0: yeah. I think I think it's something interesting because like my father's an engineer he's a civil engineer mm-hmm. but like I never saw myself being like oh civil engineering is a thing for me but like just he would talk about stuff that has to do with his work and I find it really interesting and I just I, for some reason, I find it easy to understand and, like, listen to him, even though I have no interest in that field. Like, I mm. can see myself working in it, but maybe that's solely because my dad works in that field. Mm. So, I, th- I think it's interesting how most people get a lot of similarities. Well, obviously, they get yeah. a lot of similarities from their parents, but it's, like, the field is most of the time similar to what your parents do.
1: It is so funny how we we, we follow our parents in in weird and particular ways. Yeah. So, your your dad's an engineer. And you find that like a lot of the, when it comes down to it, all engineering is the same thing. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's the idea that like engineers spot problems yeah. for humans. And then we try to remove those problems for humans. And then it's only the tools that we use to do that, that makes us different flavors of engineering. That's the true. process itself of, of saying we solve problems for humanity is the, is yeah, the same. Yeah. Whereas it's really funny cause my dad's not an engineer. Um, he's in sales well, he was in sales and management and stuff like that. And I think that's quite funny because um, he has this weird charm that he just talks to people and they're like, oh, we really like that guy. And um, and then I didn't realize like that I had that as well, but it took me years to kind of settle into it. I think I had grown up with this kind of concept that um, I was going to be like a behind-the-scenes techie kind of person. I don't know where I picked that up from, but I think that's like kind of society tells little Asian boys that you go into the background and you do tech, right? You know? So I think there's a little bit of that um going on. But then more and more when I when I came down to it realized that I probably should have been a performer. I mean like I was to a certain extent, I played a lot of music and stuff like that. But I, I think it, it's quite funny that like I settled into this that I really enjoy, which is just basically standing in front of a few hundred people and, and talking and and I don't know, like I try to do this kind of thing with my lectures where it's like, yes, you're getting content, but I also try to entertain you a little
0: bit. Yeah. Um, I think like yesterday when we were filming CSC Sock Media's Jubilee videos for Spectrum, one of the questions we asked was uh do you want to code for the rest of your life yeah and um like every student that was there said no, yeah, they of course. strongly disagree and uh when we were talking about their opinions, there was a lot about how a lot of them are social creatures they mm-hmm. they They enjoy coding, they they like the problem-solving aspect, they like how they can be a software engineer and build things, but they want to do it socially. They want to be in that social environment to do it. So they don't want to be sitting at a computer for the rest of their life, hunched over, typing code furiously. It's all about collaborating socially, working in a team, and moving up in positions where coding is less important and being socially active is more important.
1: Yeah, I I think that's great. I think that's like... I think it's kind of important that we, um, we think about like what the, um, how we are social creatures in general as humans. But I think there's something that's really interesting is the old stereotype of, of the nerd or the geek. Yeah. And it's this idea that we are this kind of shut in, no social skills, um, um, techie kind of thing. This kind of, I don't know, it's like nearly harmful stereotype of, of this tendency to be really, really socially awkward but really technically capable and stuff. And I was like, what I what I love is how little that even exists nowadays. When I meet a lot of the students and like, you know, we're talking about things and stuff and we're talking about, like we can, we can totally embrace geek culture and stuff, you know? Yeah. Like I didn't realize how much it would resonate when I started putting Avatar The Last Airbender into my lectures and then people were just like, oh, that's like, that's like my jam. And it's like, yeah, awesome. That's really cool. Um, but people were so happy to, like, you know, talk about that, you know, and let the conversation go further and things. And I think that, um, like, the old, the old idea that, you know, because we work with machines, we're not, we're not people who want to work with, with humans. And I think, I think that's, that's over and gone. Um, and I think what we, what we can do is kind of bit by bit show the rest of the world that that, that stereotype means nothing to us. And, what do
2: you think oh, was yeah. the was like the reason that that stereotype was able to like disappear?
1: I think that stereotype disappeared somewhere around the time when we took over the world.
2: <laughs> so, so like like the dot com bubble, yeah. kind oh, of the age of like when Facebook was in its infancy, and
1: yeah, yeah. So I think um, when you look at the world and the industries of the world at the moment and what things are important and what things are are making change in the world. The computing industry is in the middle of all of it. Like there's nearly no progress in the world that doesn't involve computing. So even things that you may not think uh, are about computers are using computers to process their information. So there's, there's nearly nothing that we're doing that is like, making the, the human race more capable of of living on this planet that computers aren't helping with. I mean we're also helping to destroy the planet, but let's just you know Bitcoin's bad. Um, <laughs> I should I shouldn't necessarily just throw my opinions in like that, but this is a podcast, so you yeah. can do that. Um Yeah, so I think that um sorry, where were we going? We were talking about um the the stereotypes. Yeah, so I think that a point at which It's nearly a negative thing. Like in some ways you look at it, it's nearly a negative thing. When we became the jocks. So there's this crossing crossing over point. I don't know when I would say exactly that it is, but I would guess it's somewhere around 2010, maybe the decade before that, when the the people who were like the sort of what used to be the cool kids in school and the cool kids would look down on the nerds were then all in kind of clerical jobs, middle management, whatever, you know, like doing something. But then the tech nerds were all dancing around with their six-figure salaries and the companies that were like saying, why don't we just fly you halfway across the world? We'll put you here and you only work four days a week and there's a nap pod over there. If you're tired, you work however you want. And then suddenly the tech industry was treating its staff as like these kind of, rock stars and and we really were like all the tech companies started making more money than any other companies in the world and stuff and so there was this shift and then suddenly the nerd was no longer like just the it support person that tells you to turn it off and on again and stuff it's the person who you wish you had those skills because the, the what used to be the kind of apparently shut-in nerd turns into like the the person that's genuinely changing what the the future is going to be for, let's say, I don't know, entertainment, whoever started off um, Netflix and got that kind of thing kicked off, you know, changed the way we view view television forever. Um, You get all the same things like Spotify, all the games companies and everything like that, um, completely changing the way that we saw or had ideas about the way things used to work. And then when you get to that point, suddenly, There's this turnaround where um, the nerds become cool. And then you get not a great example, but Big Bang Theory. Big Bang Theory is full of problems. So Big Bang Theory nearly... It's ended,
2: right? Sorry? It's over, right? I think it's over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to say. Um,
1: I don't know. I, I switched off actually reasonably early on on that because I realized that on the one hand was some glorification of who we are and who we can be. But on the other hand, it was just like the stereotype continuing and it was like we don't we don't need that just on
2: that that. i think you're right to say that like there's been a culture shift i think Mm. there's been particularly a backlash like you watch movies like um the social network like the story of how mark zuckerberg built facebook and it just Mm. portrays him as this like machiavellian backstabbing businessman who's like also a genius and like i don't agree i feel as if like
1: are we sure he's not that though
2: I don't think he is, to be honest. I, think I don't it's, think it's like fair to assert yeah, that. Like, how how how, how you. can yeah. you know so much about his personal life, which is what the film asserts? Was
1: he um was he involved with the making of the film? No, he wasn't. It. Yeah, because I think, think it might so. have been interview everyone who hates him. <laughs> so everyone around that's literally right it's a movie literally. based off
2: like people who are trying to sue him like it's based yeah, off yeah, two right. lawsuits like against him and of course you're going to betray him negatively like yep. not necessarily because that's the truth but because it's like popular yeah or like it'll sell um mm. it's a fantastic movie of course i'm just like the dialogue and the plot but yeah i feel yeah. as if like it is responsible for this i just feel like um yeah
0: he, he's like no matter what light he is in now at the time when he made Facebook, he was a genius. He created yeah. a platform that nobody had p- properly thought of, and he well, like to- yeah, yeah and say, yeah. he made it so successful so like like even now, if people want to say he's this and he's that, he's still a genius, like I don't mm. think you can take that away from him
1: I think that's like something that we sometimes don't realize that we can do as computer scientists is that little ideas like that, that, I mean, like Facebook, when it began could reasonably be considered the work of like two or three people, you know, you two or three people coding that up over, over the space of a few months and you could release it in its, in its original yeah. capability. And I think that's, it's like, it's like, sorry, I'm making hand gestures here. I'm too used to being on camera. Um, it's this up and down where we have this immense amount of power uh as computer scientists but we also don't know what it's going to do so i think that's that's like what you're saying there is like i think you're really hitting on that point that there was a point of genius there there was this point of this idea and i don't think he had any idea of how facebook would become the main source of communication for the human race because I don't think I'm actually stretching too far by saying that, yeah. that nowadays we could consider that Facebook is more primary communication than any other thing on the planet. Um, I don't know, I guess you could argue because like there's now this this growing idea that there are two internets. There's the one that China controls and the one that America controls <laughs> and they're like putting walls up between themselves. So I mean, like one could consider that um, some of the other apps like Weibo maybe are- Or like WeChat. Uh, WeChat especially yeah is um is as big as Facebook. It's just in a completely different market that us as English speakers don't really take part in. Um but I think from from the context of us here living in Sydney Facebook is like we organized the recording of this podcast entirely on Facebook. Facebook I don't yeah. know your phone numbers. I think at one point there was an email address used. Yeah. Someone send me a calendar invite by the email address but him. we'd confirm the time on facebook yeah. Messenger yeah. anyway right um so yeah i i very much doubt that mark zuckerberg realized that he would change the the world and then social social networking would become communication you know so i would say that um facebook messenger and everything like facebook messengers completely replaced the the telephone in a sense, yeah. like who actually calls anyone anymore. And even if you do, you probably do it over like um, over voice chat, not necessarily like actually type in the number for someone's phone, which really yeah. all our phones are still registered on that old network. <laughs> for it's like, like backward compatibility, but like day to day. Yeah. Where it's like I call someone it. and it's yeah.
0: over discord or like yes, over exactly. Facebook. Yeah. So it's not even I'm calling anyone. It's yeah. just, I'm using another platform to do it for me.
1: I love also the fact that we've sort of acknowledged that um, asynchronous text chat is so much more efficient than actually needing someone to listen to you speak while you're talking. Yeah. I always like, I always laugh at this kind of thing, like this concept of like, as tech becomes more prevalent, how do we measure certain things? So up until this point, we've measured literacy as the ability to read and write. And like, when does that flick over? And we consider literacy to be read and type. You know, because I don't know about you, but when I write with a pen nowadays, it looks worse than yeah. it did, like say, fifteen, twenty years ago, when I was writing with a pen all the time, and I considered that normal. Nowadays, when I write with a pen, I'm just like, my hand isn't even used to this. Yeah. You know, it doesn't feel like a mouse, and it doesn't make the shapes that I'm. Especially used
2: to like seeing. our degrees, for yeah, computer yeah. science, like you, you pretty much like live on a keyboard. Like it's yeah. not like arts or. I think the only time arts. I write
0: is formats, and that's not even writing, yeah, really. Yeah, just formulas. Yeah, formulas and, yeah. and doing working out. So, like, writing just doesn't happen. There's yeah. no reason for me to write.
1: You know, the scary thing about that is there's a lot of research into writing versus typing and what it does in your brain, and they're actually different. So we might be losing something fundamental by the fact that we don't write things down anymore. So I don't know what the exact results of the research ah but i think that stuff actually gets worked th- ideas get worked through in your brain differently if you're writing and so like when you're taking notes while you're listening to something and you're actually writing it down by hand you might actually be getting more out of the content than if you're typing notes um but i don't know and also i'm not sure if there's a good way around that problem so we we see these funny things like i remember i went to a to a talk years ago about um woodblock art prints so people used to carve out of wood and they'd print on paper um and that was the de facto method to put images in print so you have your printing press which was the same thing with like little metal pieces that would just stamp onto pieces of paper and the woodblock was for the images and this funny thing happened when um when actual printing took over and then you didn't need the woodblock to to make images in books or anything like that anymore um what used to become a what used to be a necessity becomes an art form because the only reason <laughs> to do it anymore is um is for expression because it's not um uh, it's not it has no utility now that we have uh, some technology that surpasses it and so i think it's really interesting how our technology moves through these phases like that and writing might be on its way to a different phase where the art of using a pen and paper you will be considered an artist if you do that not considered just doing a necessity it's like we've hit a point where it's like uh um oh that's cool you write it's like i don't know how to write i'd love to learn that one day you know like if you talk to someone about like i don't know sketching someone's face or or like painting with bob ross tutorials or something like that that's really cool maybe i'll do that one day not like you can't get through primary school without doing this yeah you know
2: i was about to say like during primary school that was very much the dynamic like you had to mm. write you had to learn how to running ride and like how to yeah. like slope and everything and then yeah. you'd go to your like computer lab class and they'd be like oh can you touch type and then you'd go back to class and you write with a pen like mm. they're saying that like in the future that that dynamic's going to be swapped like in class you're going to be learning how to type and then yeah. you can have like a separate class where you write and you just go back to typing afterwards for normal class.
1: I feel that. And I like, I always love, because I, I love sci-fi, you know, so I love thinking about what the future is going to be. And so I love these kind of theoretical questions of like, at what point in our, in our progression as, as, as humanity will these things flick over? So at what point will we flick over and consider handwriting um, to be an art form and not a, uh, not a necessary skill? For for survival as a as a human being, so I think it's well not that writing is necessary for survival, but I think it's it's something that we consider a, a cornerstone of education. Yeah. Someone being able to do that, so reading obviously will continue, I think. But writing versus typing, you, you can already see it, right? You can already see that yeah, people, yeah. like I don't know, we could just ask any one of us. When was the last time we picked up a pen and wrote something down? <laughs> This is deeply ironic because me, it was like half an hour ago. <laughs> I had lunch and I had to sign in at the restaurant and say, like, I, I am yeah. here. And so it's like, well that actually made me think about that because my, my name looked funny on the sign-in sheet.
0: It's funny because, like, because of COVID, mm. my, type, my writing has even gone down even more. I'm at home. I'm yep. watching my lecture on my screen. I'm typing my notes on another screen yep. and I'm not writing. And then I... And then you move into the phase of electronic writing and it's like people buying iPads with their Apple pens and writing yeah. that way. And it's like, that's is that real writing anymore or no? Because yeah. I feel like everything is just moving so technologically further and mm-hmm. everyone is just going to leave everything in the past because there's no need for it anymore.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is far-fetched, but I actually found an interesting point. Um, like the advantage of writing is um one of them is security Mm because i know that like in terms of elections like electronic voting is like really badly looked upon like it's ridiculous like you you can't ensure that your database won't be hacked or altered whereas like with paper ballots i mean you've pretty confident certainty that like once someone writes their vote down with a pen and seals it away that will be the vote forever Mm. so maybe in the future do you think like 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 censorship maybe like corporations or maybe not censorship but just like monitoring for maybe like corporations and whatnot will like instill the fear in people to like to like write on their computers and maybe there'll be a shift back into writing or anything that's a bit far-fetched
1: I'm not sure so I don't think I don't think there's ever a shift backwards so I mean I do a lot of painting and I love it and I think that it's important for us to have like, as highly technological people to have hobbies that bring us right back into a physical world. I think that's really important. I think we've got to have this back and forth, or else we kind of start to exist only in the abstract world, which is a really cool thing. It's like totally matrix kind of thing. But, but while we are still living in the real world, I think it's important to still have some connections to it. Um, as much as I would like to just jet off from 2020 and not live here in this physical world of what we're in at the moment. But I still don't think that technology ever really goes backwards like that. I think that you're more likely to see um, probably coming out of blockchain research and stuff like that is um, complete verification, like digital verification of things. So I think, and I have a feeling, I don't know, because I don't research blockchain or anything like that. Or, or crypto is that there are um, security tech experts who can run a completely secure digital election, um, but whether or not it's still whether or not that's viable or like feasible in terms of how much it would cost to set up a system like that over a large country. You look at the bigger countries, like how many people are in the US? I think the US 300 would be million. Yeah, 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 300 million. million. Um, China's like what are we looking at 1.2 billion is that 1.1 1.2 billion i can't remember yeah i think think those are the only two countries i could think of that have the tech to 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 try to implement this but they're both also countries that have this massive scale necessary to do it. But you
2: have this like massive rural component of the country that like it's pretty much a different country. Yeah, like rural yeah. America is not the same as like Silicon Valley, like mm. or New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And
1: we make that assumption, don't we? Like us as computing yeah. people, we just like stroll around like we we've got a computer in our pocket and another computer in our bag and we just go, that's our minimum baseline. The the laptop and the smartphone is like our minimum baseline. We just think there's people in the world who have never used a computer. And they're still living complete happy, full, fulfilled life. If not
0: more right? happy like Yeah,
1: potentially more happy. Yeah, because our computers keep bugging us and commanding us to do <laughs> things. So, like, I, just, I I think that's always really funny. Like, cause there's this psychological look at, at, at what we do with computers and how we set up all of our notifications so we always know what's happening and everything. And then we get trapped by our own notifications, yeah. you know, because it's just like, hey, you need to do this, you know. Hey and it's like it's really funny because like I play all these like random little phone games, like just like little time wasters because I like to have things that um allow me to kind of switch my brain off, and there was a point where I was playing with some people in the u s and I got up at like four a m to meet them online <laughs> to do this little thing in the game, and it was like pretty simple just like click a couple of things like to just tap a couple of things and then my my little workers go off and do stuff and join join the collective that's working on something, and it's just like. <laughs> go back to sleep, wake up in a few hours and just like go to work. And it was just like, Hey, that was, Hey, that was a weird thing to do. (laughs) But I, I kind of totally just went into that willingly. I, I I set the alarm on my phone for some God awful hour and just, just did it. And, and I find that's, if we talked to, to some people about that who aren't involved in these same kind of things, they would just look at me and just go you are is, crazy okay like yeah what he's out of his mind why is he doing that and it's like because that thing was also meaningless like that that yeah. the particular those particular games are things that i play so that i can get away from work so they're supposed to be like relaxing and releasing me from responsibilities and yet i'm taking <laughs> them on i just joke about that that um the games that we play are often the closest to the work that we do because (laughs) not that everyone is like a soldier and and playing shooters because they're a soldier but like you you'll see this kind of thing where you build up these professional skills and then you realize that some games utilize some of those professional skills. That's
2: a thing in Japan I just wanted to bring up. How yeah. about how like, like da- that's why like dancing or like precision-based games like Osu, like they're so yeah. popular there. It's because their professions rely on being precise. Yeah, yeah. And there's a different work
1: culture there about...
2: Like being efficient. Yeah, just being efficient like a machine. And, yeah. And,
1: and I think you see that a lot with the, the, the crossover between... Um, and there's a really, really strong divide between uh, Japanese games and American games. You know, I would just nearly, you could nearly class all the games in the world into those two, except for the European games, which float in this wonderful kind of place in the middle and sometimes have this. Just... Before
2: they get bought out by American corporations. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. Poor, they poor to... Minecraft and
1: Yeah, uh, but, but even then, the, the, I think the seed for it, the, the first idea that, that, that goes into those games is often um, something we haven't seen before. Whereas the Japanese and American industries are so mature that yeah. they will more likely re release something than make something new. And so we look at things like I'm thinking of um what's my call it? C D project red, you know, and they've come up over the last sort of it's been a while actually, ten, fifteen years, but they came up with this kind of, Okay, you've got your RPG, but we've got ours and we're going to put these new things in, and it's going to be neither American nor Japanese. I mean, it leans more American, especially now. Um, But at the same time, they kind of snuck in, and everyone was like, oh, there's like three people from Poland making these things. The story of Minecraft as well, literally. Yeah, yeah, the indies like that, like Mojang and stuff. Um, Minecraft was, was it just Notch on his own? Yeah, I think he, like, he, yeah, he he, built the first one. yeah, Yeah,
0: I think it was just him initially, and then... Like.
1: Just want to quietly say, do not support not
2: just current views on anything ever. <laughs> but <laughs> in terms of like selling out as company, that sounds like the Zuckerberg story. Like, I would think, you um, sell out for a billion dollars? There's, there's something weird that happens to a lot of people where they they have
1: cool ideas and then they go, I, I have these dreams and they can create something like Minecraft. Minecraft is like one of the most beautiful games for just saying, this is your world. You can be as creative as you want. You can have you can have joy yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And then they get rich and they get powerful and then they start stamping on people for thinking like that. And it's like, well, that's what you were. Like, where is this coming from? And stuff. So I think we can all just pray to never be rich and powerful yeah. because it does weird things to people. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's weird, right? Because we're all like, I just want to be rich because all I need to do is get like a certain amount of money and then I won't have to do all this stuff. But I think it's like I think it's like the notifications. I it's, think it's a it's, trap.
0: It's true. It's like you you play this small game and it gets big and it's like really fun and then mm. it gets it gets bought out by this company and now there's a paywall. I have to pay to get this. I have to pay to get that. Or now there's a battle pass that I have to. Activision Blizzard. Yeah. Activision Blizzard. And it's like <laughs> oh and it's, it's really weird. Yeah.
1: It's just like oh, also everything is, that EA buys. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. Voted the the worst corporation in America for a reason. Like (laughs) definitely, yeah. yeah. um,
2: Back to back. They've been doing it for
1: such a long time as well. I can't. Well, see, that's the problem. That's the problem. And I think that this this is going to go deeper, right? This this conversation goes deeper into the computing industry in general. Is that there's different ways that we can view computing where there's different ways we can view the the products that we create and stuff i a you can view them as products and so you can say this is successful we make a lot of money from it um and ea is successful they make a lot of money from stuff um but then you think about uh what does this do for humanity and you say that that can't be measured in money because even if it makes a lot of people rich that's not necessarily doing something positive for humanity like the entire Bitcoin. Industry has made a whole lot of people rich and a whole lot of people are really happy with it. But when we consider the amount of electricity being nearly literally just burnt away in the generation of bitcoins, so just crunching numbers to generate more of these bitcoins does nothing for humanity, right? It doesn't advance us, it doesn't make us a better species, it doesn't teach us new ways of living that's better, but it does pump a lot of CO2 into our (laughs) atmosphere. So it's like, in in search of this um uh, wealth. And and it is great for some people because they get to play around with these things. It's pushing graphics card tech, um, although making them more expensive, which is super annoying for the gamers. But it's uh it's 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 pushing this thing, but what it's doing is is actually like degrading our habitat. And it's like there's gotta be a baseline there where we think, okay the one thing we never screw around with is the only thing keeping us alive. And then we can play around with things other than that. Um, don't
2: you think that's just the story of, like, corporate America in general? I mean, every, anything that's profitable will inevitably turn into just, like, a behemoth of an industry. Like, first it was fossil fuels, and mm. maybe now it's video games. Like, I don't think that's necessarily, like, the fault of, like... Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I I, I agree. I think it's... Yeah. um and and that's and i think that's why it's so hard to think about how we could do anything about it because it feels like these giant juggernauts like you look at amazon Someone, someone had uh,
2: an interesting st- statistic. Oh, I have um, seen this. Have you seen all this infographics about the wealth of Jeff yes. Bezos? Yes. And that guy who's just like, if, yeah. if every one meter you drove was $1, you'd have to drive like for an hour to reach the wealth of Jeff Bezos. It was yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. Like, um, someone said that
1: they just looked at how much his wealth changed during the pandemic. So not how much he has, yeah. just the the differential between that and afterwards if he had decided to not increase his wealth in the pandemic and just pay all of his staff. So I'm talking about all of his staff. He's got, I don't know how many like tens That's of 50, thousands thousand of workers like around easily, the world. Yeah. He could have given them all a hundred thousand dollars each. So just he could have the differential, like from yeah, the gap. just Just from how much extra money he made in the last six months or so. And it's just like, well, why has he got all that money? And then there's people working for him who are just like barely surviving. They have to like in those go out during COVID, like during yeah. the pandemic. The warehouses were still running because, what? and this is the tough thing. I think the toughest thing for us is the warehouses were still running because we kept ordering things, because we couldn't leave our homes. And so we kept ordering things and a lot of us would have been ordering from Amazon and stuff. And so I think that's the toughest thing for us is to, is to look at that and go, we're going to blame him because he's got all the money so he's the one with the power to actually change things but we're all a part of it because we've all we're all living in the system and we've all acknowledged it and i don't want everyone to just suddenly go oh i'm a horrible person because i bought something on amazon once and it's really difficult like that's not necessarily how we could get out of this but the the thinking that maybe um we didn't have that much of a choice you know we're kind of stuck in this world as it is, but maybe we can think about how we can start shifting things in the future to to be better.
2: And do you think that's what people like Bill Gates are trying to do? Like trying to put his wealth to good use from yeah. this like tech industry. That I you've think at up? least to
1: a certain extent. Uh, yeah, I think that the the Bill and Melinda Gates have kind of looked back at at their at their past. Well, not Melinda Gates. I don't think she ever. She was never yeah. like the the owner of a massive corporation like that but um at least i think he's got a bit of a conscience and so he's thinking about i made
2: that video about like two years ago it's like what would the world do if there was a pandemic i saw it, it was like it was on vox and yeah. like lo and behold his prediction came true
1: yeah yeah i think he was he was he was trying to warn the world and i think um president obama was trying to set something up because I think they'd seen H1N1 and they'd seen SARS and stuff like that. And they were like, there's a distinct possibility that this could get worse. And why don't we set up something with the CDC and all this kind of stuff? And Yeah. And I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that was part of some of the things that were nearly attached to him personally. And so when you get a change in government, um, sometimes the new government will look at the old government and say, those things are attached to that person personally. So they're going to get credit if they succeed. So we're going to pull that thing out. And so like funding was pulled for that. And the timing was deeply ironic, but you know, what can you do now? (laughs) And I think that's the difficult thing is like, you know, we're in this world now. And so we've got to think about, okay, we can't change the past. um, But what are we going to do from here on? Like, what do we want to do to, um, uh, to think about how we're going to shape the future? And we go back to that idea, right? Us as computer scientists, you see Mark Zuckerberg, as like you know, like that chaos theory thing where the butterfly flaps on one side of the world and then on the other side a of the butterfly world, butterfly flaps, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg was that butterfly sometime around two thousand and five, I think. So I think we got Facebook around two thousand and seven when it went international. I'm just like trying to remember because I was I was actually here at UNSW. I wasn't a student anymore, but I was working here and um, doing stuff. And I remember adding all my friends on Facebook then, and it was yeah. like oh this is like ICQ all over again, but like it, it just got so much bigger. Um, yeah. And so we don't know if we're that butterfly as well. Well, when I say we, I mean you, I mean, I know I'm not already cause I'm a lecturer now I've, I've, i found a path. Yeah. I'm not necessarily um, about to fire up a startup and try to change the world or anything, but I think it's a considerable number of, of you as The students here are going to think about doing that kind of thing. So you do have the opportunity potentially over the next kind of 20 years to shift the world as much as Mark Zuckerberg did. And it's like, how are we going to plan for the changes that might come about from the tech that we create? It's such a big, like, you know, mind blowing thing to think about. Cause I mean, there's no way that he could have known. And there's no way that he could have planned for the fact that Facebook would be responsible for um, the outcomes of the elections of some of the most powerful countries in the world.
2: Was that that whole Cambridge Analytica? Um, yeah, yeah. Thing? Just looking
1: yeah. at how how likes and shares and and messaging went around and things, and how you can actually, to a certain extent, pick what's going to happen. Like the current U.S. election, um, if you have good enough a good enough look at social media i think probably more twitter than facebook because facebook is in tempo as an app it's a slower tempo app than twitter yeah especially
0: in america i don't think facebook is as big yeah
1: Um, twitter
0: is definitely the main platform they use in america Mm. so yeah but i I think if we
1: if we had a sufficiently um resourced and trained up ai looking at twitter that could call the election already yeah um but I'm not sure, because they did that. Well, it wasn't it wasn't an AI looking at Twitter, but they, they called the last election. So I remember people predicting that there was pretty much no way that Donald Trump could win. <laughs> um, but we know what happened, right? And so it's like, okay. So maybe the means of prediction are not correct, because I don't really want to turn this into a talk about Donald Trump, but like he's a wild card. He was unexpected, and he was not a career politician. And so I think people... People didn't know how to predict for him, yeah.
0: Which makes you question how he got voted in, but that's a different topic. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, like, maybe let's move on to more about. Oh yeah, this is a yeah, structured yeah.
1: podcast <laughs> where you wanted to talk about. I know. I realize. Else. I realize <laughs> that was, we're professional. We, we, uh,
0: we only talked about one
1: question, mm. um, but and it that was, was like a... me as a me as a as a child, right? Yeah, little Mark, yeah, I think yeah little
0: was. Mark, and now we've come into Donald Trump as a politician, but. Yeah. We move. And big big mark derailed your <laughs> podcast. Yeah. um So maybe we'll just look at like maybe some of your previous roles. Mm. Um, actually, one question that I did want to ask was, I think it was interesting. Is I think you finished your degree in 2003, if I'm correct, or
1: 2004? How, how do you know that? Uh, I, I we is. have. It's in my LinkedIn. Oh my god! But, These people have been stalking me. <laughs> It's just, it's just
2: called research. We'll, 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 we'll frame it that
1: yeah. way. <laughs> oh, this isn't going out live. I can't ask for help. Can yeah,
2: you I? can't.
0: Okay, it's right. too late. <laughs> it's too late. You um, know. But one thing I wanted to know was how different is, firstly, software engineering, computer science, and especially in terms of the way it's taught compared to now, because I
1: can't experience the 2003 computer yeah. science degree. I think I th- think it's really interesting. Okay, so. I'll just give you the details since you've already probably looked them up. So, I, I started my degree in 99. Um, software engineering was quite new. And um, I think I was the third year of software engi- I was the third be- intake of software engineering. Um, computer science had been running for a while. Um, there was still this kind of um, echoes of the, the, the past where we were a, um, a, a sub-department of electrical engineering. In a sense, because, I mean, you can consider, especially from a hardware perspective, that's where computing came from. But I would argue that a whole lot of computing came from maths, because what we are when it comes down to it is very, very applied mathematics.
2: Oh, and of course, the word, the word computer is based off math. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, a
1: computer used to be a person that followed algorithms, you know, and a person you could trust to follow an algorithm really well. And it used to be like, you know... um talking about like the computers at bletchley park like the the famous for the enigma place yeah when they're trying to crack the enigma code a lot of the computers sorry i'm doing air quotes here there (laughs) were humans who were really good at sitting on a piece of paper and saying i will solve this equation you know and then i'll bring this equation to someone else who puts together all the solved equations and says okay this means something now and then uh alan turing was there amongst other people um putting together a machine that could do that faster because they realized that in a 24-hour cycle the enigma machine was going to switch over to something else so if they didn't crack the code within 24 hours then it was no point there was no point cracking the code because you were just looking at old information then anyway that's that is like one of the funnest parts of computer science that whole idea of the um Uh, The cracking of the Enigma machines and stuff.
2: Did you know about any of this before you signed up for the degree? No.
1: Is this... No, hell no. I didn't know who Alan Turing was. (laughs) I I put Alan Turing in Comp 151. I didn't actually put it there myself. Andrew Taylor had put Alan Turing into Comp One Five One One lectures. And I've continued that because I feel like the idea of the Turing machine and stuff like that. And the hilarious idea that we have not theoretically progressed from that in what are we looking at now, 70 years? I don't know when Alan Turing actually came up with the idea of the Turing machine, whether it was during the war or in the research that he did afterwards. But um, yeah, in that time, he was able to nearly predict the theoretical capability of our computers up until this point, right up until quantum computing, which we're we're nearly at, but not quite. Anyway, sorry, I should go back to... Uh, the actual question so so the degree back then i think this was one of the funniest things that i noticed when i was teaching it would have been 19 t1 or 19 t2 when i just started here at we, a oh, 20, 2019 yeah, 20, yeah. yeah 2019. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was thinking in my head i was like nineteen he, nineteen. <laughs> uh, he's not that old <laughs> <laughs> i do joke sometimes because i look a lot younger than i am i do joke that i'm i'm either an elf or a robot and i don't actually age and so what i do is i hang around here and i'll hang around here at unsw for maybe i don't know well i've actually been at unsw for over 20 years now but no one's noticed that i haven't aged that whole time but when people start to notice then i'll disappear again (laughs) change my name and my identity and then turn up somewhere else in the world where no one knows me yeah that's and it's always sad seeing all you models kind of live and get old yeah. and die and stuff like that. But you know, it's I have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. Okay. So, one thing that was interesting that CompSci back then was a um we had a UAI where you have an ATAR. Um, the cutoff for CompSci was about sixty sixty five, I think. Out of a hundred. Yes. Oh. Now it's ninety two. Um, and when I heard that in my lecture, I think that was like one of the few times in my lecture that I just burst out laughing and it was just really funny because the whole lecture was just like, Oh my God, this guy's mad. <laughs> like, <laughs> why, why is he cracking up? And I'm just like, well, if you're all so smart, then I'm going to make the course harder. <laughs> and they all stop laughing. No, I didn't, I didn't do that, but, um, but I, I thought it was really funny. And I think that shows that we were different people back then so we were in the middle of this cycle of dot com crash uh dot com boom and crash kind of thing so we went in when the dot com boom was happening and we thought the computing industry was the future things were going to be great and that crashed just as myself and a, a bunch of other people were graduating so i took a research position here at cse back then actually so my first job was just like go upstairs <laughs> not not actually leave campus just go upstairs get a little office and, and start doing uh, work on research and stuff. But um, I think it was, it was a weird world because we still weren't 100% sure of what the industry was going to be. And I think that's the big difference now is now we, know, now we know where the tech industry is and we know the tech industry is – I'm, try, I'm trying to find a way of saying this without sounding really kind of like arrogant as a profession, but like the tech industry is the center of the world. <laughs> it's not true it's not true i'm 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 over overblowing it a little bit there but i think it's computing can help in nearly everything that humans want to do at the moment and i think that's that's quite relevant so that 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 would be why i'm saying like we're the kind of center of the world is that we have the capability to help nearly any any industry get things going um and but back then we were more of a novelty so I think that's the the kind of the way we were thinking as people but the way that things were being taught i'm actually kind of happy to say that a lot of the way that things were being taught was not hugely different in that the fundamental idea of using logic and um and systems built on logic to, to create, you know, more complex structures that we can use to solve really complex problems. Um, that hasn't changed because the theory of problem solving and stuff hasn't changed. Us as humans, like, I was about to say it's a solved problem just for the pun, but it's not. <laughs> but the, the, the ability to solve problems is, is, um, is a fundamental skill that we still teach and we taught back then. I think a lot of other stuff has changed um, when we think about what languages are popular, what people are doing, I was mean it still we see were...
2: you back when you did it
1: our... uh my comp One a as it was called then, under richard buckland and i I feel like this is really cool that Richard Buckland taught me, and partly at least inspired me to think about how how one can teach, you know how can you. Carry people forward into a world that they don't understand and a lot of them are scared of, and and I think I was very profoundly affected by the way that he taught. It wasn't just him, so I got, I had him in Comp One A, Andrew Taylor, Comp One B. So it's really funny that now I work here with them and they taught me twenty years ago. You know, uh, um, but I think that that kind of the the inspiration to 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 bring people into this possibility to give them a potential to do things and to show them that they have more capability of doing things than they, they thought that they had. Um, That's something that I think resonates really strongly with me. So it's like, it's, it's part of what I do, part of what I teach. Um, And I don't think that's changed fundamentally because I think that me coming here and it was like, actually like a big gap when you think about it, it was like 20 years, but I think sometimes that's, the amount of time it takes for these ideas to really settle in. So it took me 20 years to think about how, how I wanted ideas to get across to other people and how I wanted other people to feel about new ideas and teaching and stuff. And then I was ready to come back here to UNSW. And so I step into the, the the shoes that my teachers left for me, like Andrew Taylor, literally. So he was the main lecturer in COM 1511 when I was the second lecturer. And then after a term, he said, okay, Your subject now you can you can continue on like this so he it's like he literally gave me the shoes and said you wear them now um and and i think that's a that's a beautiful thing that i got to do that that um i got to work with the people who taught me and then they were happy that i had the ability to take over from them at that point Anyway, that's getting sidetracked again because this is what I'm going to do to your podcast <laughs> It's continually get sidetracked. But I think, yeah, so some of those things, I think the fundamental inspiration for what computing at CSE is, it still feels really strong here. And, and I, I really feel that in the students as well. I mean, like, it's very different because when I was a student, I would not have considered myself a model student um <laughs> but i'm not sure if anyone would consider themselves a model student but objectively now as a lecturer if i looked at myself in the past i would also not consider little mark to be a model student <laughs> uh but you know i still i still enjoyed myself a lot and i still think that having taken a really weird and awkward path through through learning and and through my work career afterwards probably gave me more uh, more, more experience that I could genuinely tap into while teaching. Anyway, sorry, I turned this back to talk about me. We were talking about how CSE has changed. I think some of the things that's changed is that we've advanced a lot of things. So there's a lot of ideas that are coming into our teaching now that just flat out probably didn't exist um, back when I was a student. So when I was a student, we would get, you know, you get your content and you learn it. And stuff. I think one of the greatest things that we have at CSE, which you may notice is the difference if you do other subjects at UNSW, is we have undergrad tutors. So we hire tutors based on how excited they are about what they do. And if we get people who are excited about what they do, that transfers to their students. Um, If we have people teaching who are kind of forced into teaching and they see it as something that is taking time away from the things they want to do with their life, um, or they're only doing it because of the paycheck um, you'll see that transfer into the students you'll see a, an attitude that doesn't um uh that doesn't necessarily set them up for really wanting to know more and wanting to learn uh, it's what i see in cse is that um and we'll notice this a lot of the time that the my experience feedback scores for our tutors are astronomically high we could take you know we could take a random sampling of our of our CSE tutors, and then just put those the, the the my experience feedback up against a random random sampling of professional lecturers, professional educators, and I would always put my money in the tutors beating the lecturers in terms of like how positive the feedback is, and I think that's interesting because um, they don't necessarily have the experience, but they have the enthusiasm, and and I find that in teaching sometimes that's worth more um and so that's one thing that I've, I've noticed about cse is we still have a lot of that um i think um yeah
0: just from my experience alone in mm-hmm. 1511 like my coding background technically only starts at university i, I didn't code mm-hmm. that much in high school like high university was my first real big exposure to coding and um one thing i noticed is that Some subjects, even in high school as well, is that like it's not about myself, it's about who teaches me. Yeah, because some subjects you can just learn by yourself, but some subjects it just doesn't work like that. And I noticed that in 1511, like the concepts are like pretty easy to go, as in you can work through them step by step and you'll be able to understand them. But it was when I went to the tutes and labs that, like having a good tutor and an, even a good lab assistant just makes a world of a difference because they can explain something that is realistically for me now in my third term mm. is easy but yeah. then it was like what's a pointer how do arrays work that um, makes no sense to me at all and they're like point is just an address it's like oh just yeah we'll, just go to that address and that's that's what it is and it's like they're giving me this real life example of using high street and i'm like oh, like that makes so much sense now. And it's like, if I didn't have someone who could explain that to me, I would still be here now thinking, I don't really know what a pointer is. And like, yeah. it's all about who teaches you and their way of teaching. So I think mm. there's an art of teaching and I, didn't, I don't think many people appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I'm often really surprised by how how great our undergrad tutors are. Because for me, I mean, like I was an undergrad tutor as well when I was here, Um, but sometimes I feel like I didn't really learn how to teach until I got really, really deep into it. So I've done a lot of teaching over the years on the approach to becoming a lecturer. Um, And sometimes it really surprises me that people who are half my age with nearly zero experience uh, are delivering really high quality teaching. And I'm just like, well... What's the point of me? Why do you hire one of them? <laughs> <I'm> like <laughs> you know, and it's like, I always think that's really interesting, and um, and it's a joy to see that because um, I th- I th- I would have thought it was rare, you know. I thought the the ability to inspire people and to teach people is rare. It's like like it's a one in a hundred people kind of thing, but to have so many people uh, who have that capability and to have them as the the really kind of the good point of contact with students, because like when you consider me as as the lecturer, I teach you know five hundred to seven hundred people at a time, I teach two thousand people a year um, it's roughly that it's not exactly, but it's it's to the point where I 'm not teaching individuals yeah. I may occasionally bump into individuals. Like it's always funny when I, I I walk down campus and someone will just wave at me and I'm just like oh they must have been in my course but I don't even know who they are yeah you know because of the numbers um the tutors are the people who are genuinely teaching
2: people just on that point about like how like like you thought it was so much more common for people to be good at teaching mm. do you think it's because like when you teach someone something like you yourself become better at the topic yeah and that's like the that's like the reason that like people who teach, still teach.
1: I was, I was talking to some of my tutors uh, the other day and one of them was saying, you know, I kind of mostly understood 1511 when I learnt it, but now I really understand it. Like, I taught it. Like, this is someone who'd been teaching it for two terms and they're like, now, now I get it. Now I really know what I'm doing. And I was joking about that because I had the same thing. Um, when I was working on stuff for my PhD... So I was working on distributed systems like big, large-scale um, Amazon compute clusters. Hey, this is this is going on to the question you were saying <laughs> earlier that what you were going to get to is like other work that I did. So I did some research in um, uh, game-playing algorithms. Um, and I was taking uh, an algorithm known as the Monte Carlo Tree Search, which is a way of looking into the future where you can't see all the future because there's too many possibilities. So you just sample some of them. Um, And to try to pump that up, I think the the, the largest I got to was uh, an Amazon compute cluster with about a thousand nodes. So I threw a thousand CPUs at this problem to see what difference it could make. And I had to really alter the algorithm to make that work. But it was really funny because I had a memory leak in my code. Um, And like nowadays, I would be like, I would never have a memory leak in my code. But back then, ironically, as someone with a decade of professional experience and stuff like that, was still just throwing memory leaks in and just going, "No, nah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Like this thing's going to turn off and on again um, every every kind of half hour or so. So it doesn't matter if it's got memory leaks. And it's so funny because if someone said that to me. In, in com 1511 i would take marks off them immediately right you're just feeling like, no learn how to clean up your memory and the the deep irony is that i had to come back and teach the fundamentals before i actually really knew them properly and i i think that's really funny um and that that's always also part of that idea that um we think that the people who are working in the computing industry uh, uh, by definition better than us um, this is like from a student's perspective, you, you think that people working in the industry are better than you because they've completed their degrees and they've got industry experience and stuff like that, but I always find it deeply ironic that a lot of us working in the industry are exactly the same as you and sort of looking back and saying, no I never really got pointers but it's okay, I've got this job now
2: <laughs> you know? I hate and it. I'm utterly kind of really meant like he he told us something very similar in his body. Yeah. It was like, um you're never ready for anything, yeah, like yeah. when you look at people and you think, yeah they have got their stuff together they they're like they've yeah, got just, their life sorted that they, they, they they're probably they probably haven't they probably it's just that impression like yeah, yeah he was no, he' was, we're all just good at acting,
0: he was saying that like a person at thirty five for example, for us may have their whole life figured out, they have so much clarity, mm. and he was saying, well. They were your age too. Like, they, yeah. did, they were messed up. They had no idea what they were doing. And they were probably looking at people when he was our age at 35 saying they have so much clarity. They have everything. You know, it's true. That and being on
1: the you. other side of 35, I was 35, I didn't know shit. Can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> um, or is it too late? Have I done that already? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll ease back on it. But I, I do tend to drop. Like Hayden dropped huge. a few too. Oh, yeah. 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 Hayden, Hayden drops <laughs> some reference. <laughs> okay, I think that I think it's like um, there is there is something in that, and I think both Hayden and I do this kind of thing where um, part of our delivery. This is always funny, right? Like your lecture deconstructing how how the lecture actually gets put together, is that we both want to talk to you like you are our colleagues. Yeah. Like there's a level of respect between us rather than see an old kind of stereotype and it's not really it's not really in cse that much um the old stereotype of like the lecturer is is god and you are are peons (laughs) and then you'll do what i tell you to do and stuff and we are we are in this kind of really distinct hierarchy but even though it's true like we are I'm a god, obviously. Like, we've, we've discussed this already. No, but like, even though there is obviously a hierarchy, um, we don't have to communicate like we're talking down to you. And so I think Hayden and I will, will will both both have a very similar... I don't know, actually. I should sit on somebody's lecture sometime. It'd be super disruptive if I turn up to his lecture, but maybe I can turn up to his online lectures instead. But um, I think we, we have a way of delivering where we we want to talk the way that you're going to hear. So... It's, it's much more this kind of, I don't know what the word for it would be. I, the word that keeps popping in my head is like real talk, but I don't, I don't think that's a real I think, I think that's
2: why like, like... Down to earth. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's
0: probably... I think that that's way. why, um, especially Comp 1511 tutors mm-hmm. like resonate so well with the students because for most people that's their first term in university mm-hmm. and like... Even though this person may be older than them, prob like smarter than them, most likely. And most opportun- I would not <laughs> assume
1: either of those things. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've met my tutors. No, I'm not I'm not talking down to my tutors, but um, there's no reason yeah. to assume that your tutor is older or smarter than you. Yeah, but like it's they've just it's, seen the content. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And it's like I think that's why they work so well or like yeah. for me personally, they like made it so easy for me to learn is because they were just like, even though I knew they were like, oh, they were older than me. They've already done the content. It felt mm. like they were also doing the content with me at the same time. Um, yeah. And that's why it felt like it was so easy to learn. It's just like, this person got it before me and they're explaining it to me now. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's why it felt like it was so easy to learn.
2: And that's... Just on yeah. that, sorry. Yeah, like, yeah. I think that... I, I'm, I'm actually curious. Do, do you actually make it so that the tutors have to have done the course in order to tutor it? Like, As in that you can't be like, oh... The tutor like they tutored somewhere else at like another university or something and now they're tutoring comp 1511 because i think like the fact that they've all gone through the like the course and they're like oh i remember i remember this assignment or seeing mark's cat and Alexis, like, <laughs> yeah, that, like, yeah, yeah. the lectures like you know like little nuances it makes it so much easier and like yeah. reassuring to say like yeah yeah he went through that and now there he is, like like they're my tu- there is my tutor mm. so like i that 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 can happen to me as well yeah,
1: I yeah. I always like the fact that my cat is now an internet celebrity. <laughs> like that's 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 something that that I always laugh about. Um, but yes, I think that is important. I I'm not saying that I wouldn't hire someone that hadn't done one five one one, but the job would be much harder for them. Yeah. I mean, having said that, I tutored one five one one because the first time I came here, I did it. I, I took a tutorial myself because I wanted to see how all the different parts of the course worked. Um, and so I taught that tutorial without having done the course or even without having lectured or administered the course before. So I dropped straight in and, and started lecturing and tutoring immediately without, without having seen it. So I was just going off experience that I had teaching in classrooms and stuff like that. And I was hoping that that would, that would be enough, but I think that it helps a lot for people to have seen things before and to be able to say, Oh, this is this cool bit in the course. So there's going to be this challenge exercise. You don't have to complete it, but look at it because it's going to be super interesting. Like, just get it, just get it to, to trigger thoughts in your head. Oh, the Um,
2: decryption one last time, like (laughs) Like, you're not really expecting. No one's ever completed that.
1: Uh, Andrew Bennett, one of the old, uh, subject admin for one five, one, one. I think he's a Google now. Um, uh, he completed the uh the substitution the crack substitution and it was bigger than either of the assignments (laughs) on the course um so and i i don't know if any of the students have ever completed it if there is a student who has completed the crack substitution then they probably should have had an exemption from 151 (laughs) because if they could do that then there wasn't that much, especially the technical C kind of stuff, or even like you know the the soft skills we talk about, problem solving and debugging to put together to to put together something that big. They probably didn't need any of that either. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that's yeah, that's funny. But this comes from, and I, I borrow a lot of this teaching theory from Andrew Taylor because he designed the course before before I took it, and I started modifying things. But stuff like that is from um from when he was the course convener. Um, he has this kind of theory that and I especially find this true in 1511 that people are going to come from many many different backgrounds Um, so we should be supporting all the different backgrounds so that exercise and a couple of the other random things like that are just basically in support of the people who have been coding all the way through high school and they're going to be maybe a little bored with the content but if we throw a few things like that in there they'll at least not think that they know everything I think one of the worst things you can ever do nearly as a human being, one of the worst things you can ever do is think that you already know everything because once you hit a point where you think, you know, everything you're going to stop learning. And if we stop learning, then what are we, you know, like, I feel like that myself, like, especially as a teacher, if I want to keep teaching, the most important thing for me is to understand the journey from not knowing something to knowing something. And so if I never pick up anything new, Uh, I'm going to start to unconsciously at least think that I know everything all the time and forget the journey from going from nothing to something. And if I forget that journey, I can't take anyone else on it, you know. So it's like that. So I – it's like three years ago, three, four years ago, I I took up painting. I don't know if you – You've seen yeah. like there's there's my instagram that every now and then some students find it as well that i i just paint miniatures i've actually got some of them here but obviously we're on a podcast there's <laughs> no point uh no point getting them out but um like little scale figures and stuff like that um was that
2: the inspiration for your the last question of the exam last term yes with the, with the miniature painting yes yeah the miniature painting. that was thing. a ridiculously hard pro- how hard were the op- complete tangent how hard were the auto tests because i passed the four and then i looked at my mark and it was like you failed the other six and i'm like
1: wow well done for getting that far actually (laughs) most people look at that question and say i could still get an hd in this subject without looking at that question i'm walking away
2: (laughs) i mean i'm I'm impressed that surely even
1: got some of the auto tests out
2: but i don't even know so like it's because there's a lot of weird cases
1: yes um don't want to discuss the details yeah, of the exam question fine. in case you we want to use it piece, again. Yes. Yeah, but there was, but I, I, I don't mind discussing the theme. It was like about it was a, it, uh, it was a thing to do with painting miniatures. Only it was not a miniature at all. <laughs> it's like it was like, was it an integer array or we didn't even specify? I think it was
2: just like a single. Oh no no, it no, was it was like, like a, I think the hard part was like the length list part. Yeah, it's like yeah.
1: I think it, you can assume that the the final question in in a one-five one-hour exam, it's going to force you to use pretty much everything in the course all bundled into one question. And some parts of that question are going to be, can you look at everything that we've taught you in the course and see the potential consequences of using these things in interesting ways and then apply them? When this thing used to be a three-hour exam, people would just be like, nope. we get these hilarious comments. Like, you know, because we're gonna mark the exam later and we'll get a piece of code um, that doesn't pass any auto test, but just has comments in it that says, like, there is no way I can answer this, but thank you for the course. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think those are really funny. But that's nice because marking can be um, very monotonous. And so it's nice to have something, a little thing like that to break things up. Because when we mark, we have to do this kind of thing where for consistency, one person has to mark a question through the entire course which means you have to mark all instances of that that question. So, if I take, say, question three from the exam, I mark like six hundred people, or so, um, depending on how many people already going kind to of got full marks or not. But I'm marking a whole bunch of people, and by the end of it, I'm just like, I'm so tired of looking at this same question, and and by the end, it's like I know every single possible way that people can get this wrong now. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it all. <laughs> I think. Um... It's funny. One thing
0: I want to touch on is I know mm. that you have a love for games. Mm. I think that's very apparent. And um, I know at one point you were a games programming teacher. Yes. Um, So that obviously combines your interest with games and programming and teaching. But what did you do in this role? And what did that entail? And how did you find it?
1: <laughs> right. So I taught in a um in a different institution, <laughs> name redacted. Well, actually, no, like, people can look it up. I... Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's look I'm just not I'm not going to say the names because I think it's better not to talk yeah. about other other mm-hmm. institutions necessarily but um I taught somewhere else where we were teaching people how to make computer games um when you think about it I was teaching them computer science but I was choosing their electives for them right. in a sense so one of the electives would have been a refresher on Um, trigonometry and linear algebra because without um, matrix calculations one can't do animation for example Um, another one was um, building something like a physics engine so how to do fast real time physics calculations Um, another one's obviously something like computer graphics because if you can't see it's not a game, well that's not true that's not true, there are games that you can't see anything, completely auditory and I think some of that stuff is uh this undiscovered country of some really, really cool stuff that people
2: could do. But I mean is like, you just listen.
1: Yeah, you, know, like you just so the game's on headphones. You, you hold, like, a game pad, and you wear a set of headphones, and you don't see anything. And it's like, can you play a game purely on That's that? That's interesting. Um, I remember, because I used to be really active with the Global, global Game Jams. Um, the very first Global Game Jam Sydney edition was actually run by... Um, someone called Malcolm Ryan, who's a friend of mine who used to be the games lecturer here at UNSW, I think he, he left UNSW, would have been sometime around 2010, 2012-ish, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, um, he, he ran the first Sydney edition of the Global Game Jam at the Powerhouse and I was actually in that jam. Um. I can't remember why I started talking about game jams. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but I used to do a lot of that stuff and it was a lot of fun. I'm sure there was a point there that I was getting to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I did see someone once do an entire, entirely auditory game because often in the game jams, there's a lot of experimentation going on because people want to get out of the normal kind of thing where you try to make a game because you think that it will appeal to an audience and sell and stuff like that whereas when you go to a game jam and you're going to throw 48 hours at something and then probably throw it away afterwards you make games that you think that people aren't necessarily going to play but you wanted to explore something so it was just headphones and a controller and I I didn't actually get a chance to play it because I think there were a lot of us there at the time and it was hard to actually get in and have a go but um, I think stuff like that could be really interesting. Anyway, that's an aside. So I was teaching at uh, um, at, a, at a place where you um, where we taught people how to make computer games, and so there was that kind of thing where I was teaching those those sort of electives. And so if one wants to, one can tailor a CSE degree to that kind of thing. Um, but the other thing that we did, which was, I guess similar to what you would do if you were doing a thesis where you had a big capstone project at the end and we would put people into teams the nice thing about this place is they were teaching um 3d artists game designers and programmers in the same building so we would get them to put together teams um the ideal team is about four people for this kind of thing where you got one programmer one designer and two artists because usually in terms of like the the actual workload that goes into games more of it is creating art assets than it is um anything else um not that the other things aren't crucial but in terms of just the raw amount of workload um you need more art than anything else to make computer games work um and so they would have a few months to make that and i would be their producer in a sense so i would go in and give them advice on what to do and like how to react to the testing. That they're getting and how to actually structure their project so that they meet their milestones and things like that so it's kind of funny because you end up with um and i think you're going to get this in a lot of the project work in um in a cse degree is like by the end of it you'll at least have some idea of what an agile process is and how you might um, try to apply that i mean agile is a very loose term um some people formalize it A lot and other people take it on the ideal because the whole ideal of agile is it's not necessarily formalized it's meant to be like agile (laughs) i'm trying to think of another word it's like like agile means reacting to different situations right so hopefully what we do is is a similar thing here where by the time you get to the end of your cse degree you could have all of the same skills that i was teaching there which is cool because like you know i'm teaching here now and i'm teaching the same (laughs) <laughs> the yeah. same kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Um, so maybe let's talk more about your role in UNIS. Sorry, actually talk mm. into the mic. Uh, more about your role at UNSW. Um, so you mentioned how you found that you had this charm from your dad. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you think that teaching would always be something you want to do, or have you always wanted to teach?
1: I could nearly say I've always wanted to teach, but I won't say always because I know when it happened. Okay. So I was tutoring computer graphics um at CSE. This would have been I want to say 2003. I want to say it was during my last year here um uh, as a as an undergrad. I have spent many many more years here after. <laughs> I worked here as a systems engineer for I think 7 years. Um, in a research institute Australia called I Cinema, right? yeah. Okay. And so that was I loved talking about that because I get to say this phrase like I was doing VR before it was cool. <laughs> so we were doing VR in large projection environments. So we would have a cylindrical screen, ten meters diameter. So this a big room you can walk inside. It's actually like we're on campus now. For anyone who's listening in, it's about a hundred meters in that direction in the Scientia building. Occasionally they open it up for public events and stuff. Don't expect that to be happening anytime (laughs) soon, (laughs) but we did some stuff with Sydney film festival and stuff like that in there. Um, where are we going? Oh, we were were talking about, did you always uh, want uh, to teach? Oh yeah. Yes. We're talking about, did I always want to teach? Okay. So I was tutoring graphics. Um, and I still remember this vividly. It was like in the quad. Um, for anyone who's listening, I'm pointing at the quad now, and that's completely <laughs> irrelevant. Um, <Yeah. laughs> we had, I think, three graphics tutors running at the same time slot in one corridor of the quad, the way that turned out. And by the end of term, and this was kind of mean, I didn't do it intentionally, but it was kind of mean to my friends, because the other tutors were actually my friends, that we all had our scheduled, you know, 20 or so people, but by the end I was standing room only in my room. Um, there would be people leaning in the doorway to, to, to hear me teach. Um, and I remember like the very last tute of that year, the, the whole room was like clapping and, 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 and cheering at the end of it. And I was like, what's going on here? Something's, something's clicking here. Like, you know, there's, there's been, been times in life where I've been good at things and stuff and I'm like, okay, that's great. So like, you know, programming is one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I feel good at this, but at no point did I feel like I was better than most of the people around me or anything like that. But this clicked in, in a, in a weird way. And it was like, oh, I, I might be good at this. This might be working. Whatever I'm doing it's getting people to the point where they want to hear what i'm teaching and 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 it's getting them where they want to be and so i think that's the point where it clicked for me and i thought how do i keep doing this forever and and i think that that was also the, i think the funniest thing about this also is that i obviously like it when people clap at me <laughs> so i just like oh, that's funny because like you know everyone everyone likes being appreciated um but i think that one one of the things about me is that I'm much closer to a stereotypical extrovert than a lot of people. And, like, I spent my whole life thinking I wasn't this. I spent a whole like, so much of my life thinking that I did not want to be necessarily seen. I just wanted to, like, you know, just do things. I thought I was, like, that stereotypical nerd. So I was affected by that stereotype and started to try to live in it. And then not only later on did I realize it's like, no, this is not me at all put me up in lights. I wanna be up on a stage or something like I was part of the CSE review as well. Um I Do you remember what it was called? They always have really good names. The first one was Minority Review, which is like a joke on Minority Report. And like it was also kind of funny because when we started the review, a whole lot of the other stuff on campus, like the other reviews and things, would look at us and just go, why are you even doing this? You're computing students. Why are you even doing this? Um, but then we we found our place. Um, one of the people who was writing scripts for that first CSE review is now a professional comedian. Um, he's been on an ad with Jeff Goldblum. Hi, Paul. He's not going to hear this, not unless <laughs> I tell him. But, you know, and it's really interesting to see that, like, in a way, we sabotaged his computing degree and his computing career and sent him off into comedy instead. Having said that, he's got a full-on successful career now. So, oh, the Australian TV series for Drunk History. I think he's in that or he wrote stuff for that. I can't remember. I think that's, that's on channel 10. I don't know. <laughs> I feel bad now though. Like my friend, my friends are in it and I, I don't keep track of exactly what's happening, but um, yeah. So, At that point, that point where I was getting that kind of feedback from my teaching, I thought I would like to do this. And I find that deeply ironic, right? Because it is now 2020. I've been lecturing here since 2019. So only, only last year and this year, when I decided that I wanted to, that I, I could feasibly want to work as a university lecturer was 2003. So the journey was probably a little bit longer than it should have been. (laughs) I, um, I did a lot of work, you know, as an engineer. And I think that that was important because I think it helps for me to be able to come back here and teach knowing that I've actually done the work itself. And so I can come back and teach and say, yeah, that thing's important, but that thing's not so much, you know, so... I don't want to, I was going to say, I was going to say which things I was going to say examples, but I don't want to tell students which things are not important. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you which things are important. I'm doing a professionalism talk on Friday. That's just my one, five, one, one students. Most of my one, five, one, one students have seen this talk and it's, it's all this stuff about, yes, you can code, but there's so much other stuff that's necessary if you, if you really want to work. And I think this is exactly what you were talking about earlier about, um, uh that we are social people and it's important for us to be able to do that and for it's important for us to be able to be like be happy working in teams and things like that yeah so i think there and then yeah so there's this long and tumultuous 15 or so years of me saying this is the target how do i get there so i have most of a phd but not a complete phd which i thought had had, had tanked my potential Um, academic career entirely I thought that because I couldn't get over that hurdle that I was never going to be able to teach and I've seen other people I've seen that happen to other people people so friends of mine who were working in the same lab of PhD so we were all in the AI lab here at CSE who only wanted the PhD so they could become a lecturer only to teach and lecturers don't just teach like I'm one of the few lecturers that only teaches because I've been hired under a specific Program for education focused, which is why I'm teaching so many students. Um, most of your other lecturers will come in for one or two terms a year and teach, but otherwise they have important things to do, furthering the knowledge of humanity. You know, that's like that's that's what a university lecturer is supposed to be doing is um, is is doing research into the way that the world works and how we can how we can do interesting things or the way we can do cool things with computers. Um, so I'm I'm purely um, teaching. And so I thought that, um, that without the PhD, I was never going to be able to get this job. And that's why I ended up teaching at that other institute, because that other institute was entirely industry focused. Right. So it was what you would consider to be vocational training. No research attached. We're not thinking about um, furthering the knowledge of humanity. We're thinking about just getting people from the point of, I don't know what to do with my life to I am capable of doing this thing let me go look for a job in this industry Um, and one could say that there's a significant portion of UNSW that's like that Um, if we look at all of your sponsors all of your sponsors are specifically sponsoring you so they can cherry pick the best students out of CSE SOC and try to hire them before the other companies get in on them i always think it's really funny because like everyone's always like um oh gotta get an internship it's really important to get employed to get an internship and stuff and so the students really want the internships um, and the companies really want the students to take the internships so it's actually this wonderful symbiotic relationship because the companies need the students to take the internships because they want to be able to see people. It's really, really easy to do this try before you buy thing. So people will do their internships, and then they will um, they will see um, uh, that the companies will be able to see this is what um, this is what this person works like. So we've had them for months, so we know exactly what they work like. We can hire them. There's no risk. We don't even have to interview them because because we already know and and that is like having having been around the hiring process and worse being around the process of trying to figure out who you don't keep like if you're in a company that has to shrink at some point you have to pick who has to go it's 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 really rough but when you when you're hiring people and you already know them there's 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 no risk you don't have to interview people and like hire someone put them on like a three-month probation thing and at the end of it go, I don't think we can keep that person, you know? So the internship process is really, really nice, I think, for the companies because they can, they can put offers out to what, who they think are good grads, but it's also really good for you as students because you think, I can see what these companies are like. And you can do this sneaky little thing that, that people often don't realize is that every job interview, every internship is swinging both ways. You're looking at that company And then you're deciding whether you'd want to work in that company and the companies know that you're telling all your friends whether or not you should work at that company as well. So it's, it's like this, this kind of thing where I think it's a very positive loop where the, the companies can hire with less risk, but they also provide really good experience to the students and nearly advertise the quality of their working conditions to the students as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's this beautiful thing. And so like, yeah, UNSW is not just um, an education. It's also vocational training to a certain extent as well. I think touching on that, do you think, um, I know a
0: lot during 1511 you touch on a lot of non-technical concepts. Mm. Do you think there should be more emphasis on soft skills in comp courses?
1: Yes and no. I think that I mean, yes, I think that we do need to teach it. Um, I think it can be learnt. And I think that's the the downside is that a lot of people don't think of soft skills as skills. They often tie soft skills to someone's personality. Um, They think that we're all born with our communication skills. And that's like entirely not true because none of us are born being able to even speak a language that's learnt. whether we can work with other people and whether, especially like when, cause we all communicate in different ways. Like a, a lot of us have different levels of ability for communication. And that doesn't mean that someone who has communication disabilities is actually a bad communicator. It just means they're going to find a way to do things well. Um, and so I think that all of this stuff can be learned and all of this stuff can be taught. The one, I think one of the biggest difficulties that we have in a university system is it's very hard to assess it. Right. And if it's really hard to assess it, it's really hard to put it into a curriculum and 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 actually have a course that is going to rank and number people, you know, at the end with with your marks and say this is actually an assessment of you and your communication skills. So I think we should teach it, but it's very hard. Because if I said to CSE Let's do a course that is entirely about. Um, uh, let's, let's say I called the course professional in, Professionalism in Computing. Actually, we already have that. It's like ethics and professionalism. Yeah, I think it's more so. than just professionalism, it's ethics as well. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. ethics as well. So I think that's important as well. I don't think, I, I agree with the university in that regard. The university says that we should not send any engineers into the world without ethics. Um, and I think that's important because otherwise people make death rays. Um, <laughs> I don't think anyone actually makes death rays <laughs> because we gave them ethics. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, we can teach people ethics, but whether they actually follow them is, is entirely up to them. Um, and that's a much harder thing to teach. I yeah. think that's teaching people to give a shit. So if you're trying to get people to actually care about the people around them, they're much less likely to build death rays if they care about the people around them unless they care only about the people around them and the people across an imaginary border they hate <laughs> them then they may still build death rays but at yeah. least they'll have safety checks for their friends mm, that are used we
0: might them. run into problems <laughs> with that.
1: I don't know how I got onto that um yeah so yes i do think they should be but also i find that my advice for anyone who wants to pick up more soft skills is get into dumb situations
2: I love saying stuff like that
1: and just sort of (laughs) dropping that for a moment before I actually explain what I'm going to say. So what I mean by getting into dumb situations is you don't know how to resolve an argument between people who have different ways of getting a job done until you've been in a situation where that argument has actually happened or you've been on one end of that argument and then afterwards you look back and go, that was a really dumb thing to argue over. I don't know why I was in there. Yeah. So, for those of you, the, the two of you who are in the room with me right now, being part of CSE SOC poten- has a good potential to do that. I would wow. say that CSE SOC is potentially not even a great place to do it because CSC SOC appears to be quite functional. Yeah. So, I joined a bunch of student societies that...
2: We're, we're, we're glad that you say that. <laughs> we got the appearance. This is
1: just what it looks like from the outside. So like whenever I turn up... Everyone in CSOX stands up straight and just like, oh, say hi to Mark and stuff like that. But I think (laughs) potentially under the hood, there's a lot of arguments going on and they should be. If you care about what you're doing, then occasionally, yeah, of course, you're going to argue about it. Because if everyone cares about what they're doing, but everyone has different views about how to reach our goals then yes, there do need to be arguments. They don't have to be full-blown arguments. They don't have to get personal or anything like that, but there should be some way to resolve the fact that people want to do things differently, and that doesn't make them wrong. That makes them just wanting to achieve the goals in different ways. Um, this is the classic thing about like left-wing, right-wing politics. There's no right or wrong. Both of them are going to have ways to achieve a solution, which is the betterment of the people that they're, um, they're working for. Um, but i think increasingly nowadays that has turned into like this weird thing where it's it's become personal instead of like people just attack people who are on the other team and it's like this red versus blue thing it's like do you prefer xbox or playstation because if you prefer xbox you're wrong and you're stupid and i'm gonna fight you right and so like when we hit that point then there is no resolving that it just becomes it becomes a continual fight um but I think that, yeah, getting yourself into these dumb situations is, is, is really good. So I learned a lot by, because I did a lot of theatre here on campus. And so there were a lot of times where we were, we were pumping out a lot of shows. And a lot of the people who were in those shows were obviously art students working in theatre. So they had a goal. They were trying to build up experience and stuff like that. Um, whereas I was just enjoying playing with power tools and building things and like getting to program lighting rigs and all this kind of stuff was like oh it was just applied computing you know it was just applied engineering for me but i accidentally learned how to put a show on which is really good um but a lot of those were you know there's a society and there's the people leading the society and they know what they're doing but then when you put on a show there could be multiple shows happening at once so there would be Several times where you'd be in a show and it would be, this director has never directed anything in their life. They've seen a lot of shows. Maybe they've acted in other things and it's their first go. So they're probably going to stuff it up. And so I would pick a role that I hadn't done before. I'd be like, I'll build your set. And they're like, how good you, are you with carpentry and stuff? It's like, oh, I don't know. I'll figure it out, you know. <laughs> um, but it was an environment where we were allowed to learn and fail because the people coming to the shows were mostly our friends and they'd be pretty nice to us when they told us it didn't work. So they'd be like, that show was not very good, but, you know, it didn't have to be.
2: Um,
1: And and I think there's, like, so, so much value in that kind of learning. I am again going off on other (laughs) tangents here. But I think that you can learn a lot from that. And there was always... Like we always had internal politics and squabbles and stuff like that. And there was always this situation where it's like someone doesn't know what they're doing, but they've got a good idea and they do something which we would look at it in hindsight or we would try to judge it objectively and say that is wrong. Except from that person's perspective, that was pretty right at the time. It was a decent decision. Um, They were working with what information they had. Um, But it usually would spark some kind of trouble and arguments. And like you don't really know... How to deal with those situations unless you've kind of been exposed to them a lot and then later on when there's so much at stake when you've got like a five million dollar project that you're working on for this company and the exact same argument comes up you can go i've been here before and you know like this is exactly like learning pointers right this is why i want to bring it back to like it's a skill it's a learned skill learning how to use pointers is a learned skill learning how to deal um with a, a clash of personalities in in a in a working group is also a skill. So the first time you see it, you're like, I've got no idea what's going on. What is that little and what is the little and and why is the star there sometimes and the stars that's not there other times. What the hell's going on. <laughs> the second time you see it, you go, stores a memory address. I'm getting it. Third time you see it, you just go, Hey, can we do pointers to pointers? And it's like, all right, fine, you've got it, shut up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, and it's the same thing with those soft skills is that the first time someone says to you, can you just give a five minute speech in front of all these people? You're just like, oh my God, I'm covered in sweat. What the hell? I cannot give a speech in front of people for like five minutes. And then after you've done it, just in front of your friends, and they're like, that wasn't very good, but we still love you it's sort of okay. And then the second time you do it, they're like, wow, I didn't expect you to get better that quickly. And then from then on, you're like, let me give the speech. I got this, you know? Yeah. Um, and so all, all learning is kind of like that. You've, you've kind of got to be bad at stuff to be good. And so you need to, you need to seek out those opportunities. And I think those soft skills, if we're not necessarily going to teach them, and we are a little bit, like we throw you into a lot of group work um, and there's nothing better than um, a significant amount of student group work to show you what it's like to still have to deliver product in a dysfunctional team.
2: This is like the hilarious
1: thing. Students are always like, why do we have to do this group work when there's always some idiot that just doesn't pull their weight? And I'm just like, yeah, that's what the companies you work for are like as well, by the way. This is the same guy who's not doing any work over in the corner, only dude is collecting a six-figure salary and we still don't know why. <laughs> you know? And it's always really funny because we're just like, but in the end of the day, we're still going to deliver product and we're still going to deliver something that we care about that we've worked hard on that is going to go well and we're just hoping that people can see the difference between us and that other person and that hopefully is reflected in the marks that you get after stuff like peer review in group work here and then later on in your work it should be reflected in what opportunities you get given later so it's kind of like you'll you'll hit a point where um that person who everyone knows is not really um not really pulling their weight someone has a really cool idea and they spin out of the company in a startup and that person never gets carried because the startups like, Oh no, we're lean. We're chopping the fat off this. But someone taps, taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, do you want to come in the startup? I'll give you equity. We're going to, we're going to go big. You know, we've got, we've got VC funding coming in and stuff. And it's like, sweet, let's do this. You know, let's, let's hop in the highly unsafe rocket and and take off into the world of startup land where we are either going to have a great time and make something really cool that people are going to see or we're going to crash and burn and then come groveling back here and ask for our jobs back but either way by the way you should totally do that as well the whole idea of like seeking out interesting situations shouldn't stop once you stop being a student because one should be a student of the world <laughs> sorry every time i say something really cliched i can't help but like um, make fun of it. (laughs) So maybe
0: as a concluding point, we can maybe ask you what's either the best piece of advice you've ever heard or something that's just stuck with you over the years?
1: Oh, this is tough. There's so many little things, I think. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to give you a piece of advice that I... I pulled together over over a few years of teaching people and especially teaching people about creative things but also i think it works for pretty much everything because i don't believe there is very much in computing at all that is not creative because everything we're doing is creative problem solving regardless of whether the outcome is is a piece of art or a like a piece of industrial code because even the most kind of utility based industrial code has some kind of artistic problem solving going on inside it so i used to bug my students with this like, just four words make thing make good and it became a Sounds mantra to, yeah <laughs> well it was really funny because it, it, it became a mantra for them it became a thing where they would they would hold to that as a um as a way that they would want to um want to work so Breaking this down, make thing make good. If you try to make something good when you haven't made it yet, you're gonna end up not making it. If you aim for perfection in 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 your first iteration of something, invariably you will be crippled by the need to make it perfect and you won't make it. So make it first, doesn't matter how good it is, make it and then make it good afterwards. So make whatever the hell kind of prototype you want iterate on it and make it work. This is a classic approach to coding interviews as well. So when you get a technical question in a coding interview, the first thing you always do is think of the simplest way you can solve it. So you go, okay, brute force, I'll do like an order N squared solution to this. And I know that's bad, but at least I've got an answer. I've made the thing, Yeah. then I make good. Then I look at it afterwards and I go, okay, we could make this more efficient by changing this in certain ways. Yeah. Like I know that many situations that are n squared situations will end up being an n log n. So let's start working at other ways of doing that. You know. So that kind of uh, that kind of approach means that you don't have to think about what is the super optimal solution first and then come back. Uh, but instead, you, um, <laughs> yeah. A- instead, you, um, you, you go for something you can achieve, and then you iterate on it. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think that's really good advice and I think that concludes perfectly so I think we have to wrap up now because yep. we've been talking for almost two hours and um, I think we just want to say thank you to all the people listening and thank you for listening to another episode of the Echo Podcast, thank you especially to our guest Mark Chi for joining us thank you and for having me. we'll have another episode out for you guys soon, thank you guys
2: thanks all